Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Philippians chapter 3, verse 15 reads, Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. And if I could borrow the language of Paul in one part of Philippians to summarize the entire thing, I think I would choose that. Think this way. Think this way. It's really interesting to me because I mentioned this in regard to Jonah, but the same is true with Philippians. I was not very clever or strategic in the choosing of books for us to preach here at Faith Bible Church. In fact, Philippians I chose at the same time as Jonah, and if my memory serves me correct, this was before the split of last year. This was about two years ago. I had chosen Jonah and Philippians, sorry if this disappoints you, largely because I had studied them in seminary and had the best grasp on them and felt I could most accurately convey them to you as a very young preacher. And yet, as we found in Jonah, God's providence is at work. And that was a sermon series, I think, very necessary to our body every single week. And as I've been over the last couple of years studying and immersing myself in Philippians in preparation of teaching it, I find exactly the same thing. It's almost uncanny how relevant everything in this book is, not just to the Christian life in general, but I mean very specifically to our situation as a local body right now, which isn't what it was two years ago. I take that to be God's kindness to us. So, what I want to do this morning is, as we look at the first two verses of this text, what I really want to get at is, more broadly, what is the message of this entire letter to prepare you? Because we'll be looking at that for the next so many weeks. How is it even that this letter, as I've said, directly addresses the things that we're going through right now? What are the needs that it's meeting, even for us? Or if it's, like I said, about thinking, think this way. What is the way of thinking that Philippians is going to produce in you as a child of God that you need now more than maybe ever in your life, certainly in the history of this church? Let those of us who are mature think this way. What way? Probably not the way you have been thinking, and <laughs> not to be pessimistic, I'm sure in many cases, yes, but I find that you'll be challenged by the book of Philippians, because how have you been thinking? Just take an inventory of yourself over the last, say, couple years. What has been the general tenor of your life? If I could somehow reach into your mind randomly on a Thursday while you're at work, while you're raising your children while you're surfing the internet randomly, and I'm going to pull out a thought. Maybe do that several times through your week. What are the things that you are thinking about? What is the way that you are thinking? I'm not talking about the details you have to think about, because you have to to live in this world, what you'll eat and drink and so forth. I'm talking about the way you think, the tenor of your mind. That's what Philippians is interested in changing for you. Because the way that you think, biblically speaking, produces the sort of church this is. 
It's the way each of you individually think. And it produces the fruitfulness or lack thereof in your life as a Christian. It comes back to the way that you think, not just Sunday morning, because now I have your attention, but I'm talking about throughout the week, day to day, how do you think? And especially, as we'll see later, how do you think about the hard things God brings into your life? And how do you think about each other in this room? We've seen in the last year or so, I think, (laughs) what happens when we believers think basically the same way that unbelievers think, along the same lines as the world. It really seems to me, and maybe you found this too, that for most of us, the way we think about any given issue sort of aligns with the same thing you'll find in news outlets or the social media influencers you follow, or the podcasts that you listen to, whether those are by believers or, in most cases, by unbelievers. And yet, the way we think tends to fall along those same lines. I think that's become clear in the last few years because there's been a lot of political things, a lot of things on the news that get our attention. So how do you think? Paul says, think this way. How do you think about a pandemic? Unbelievers think about it in this way, with anxiety and anger. How do you think about it? How do you think about the national political tension and separation happening in our country? Unbelievers think about that, conservative or not, with anxiety and anger. How do you think about that? Think this way. As for just the content of what you think about, I found in this last year, and you probably have too, that not just how we think about issues, but even what you're thinking about, let's be honest, a lot of that's being shaped by someone somewhere deciding what news is run. (laughs) So, it makes sense if unbelievers are thinking about that, following the course of this world, but for you, what do you think about? And let me ask this as we get into Philippians, the things you are most thinking about day by day this week, will they matter when this earth is gone? Because that's coming. Or again, the things you most think about, if I took your thoughts and put them here and compared them to any news outlet run mainly by unbelievers, would they be the same? This is the way lost people in the world think, but you think this way, and it's, it's different. So that is what this book is going to be about. Philippians, it's about changing the way that you think. And so we're going to use, as I said, the first two verses of Philippians today to sort of springboard off of that and introduce you to the whole. So let's begin by just reading these first two verses, and we'll start to consider the letter as a whole. So chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi 
with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those verses might seem like a mere formality to you. They're just the way in the ancient world someone would introduce a letter. You would put who's writing it and who's receiving it and give a little greeting. That's exactly what you have in the first two verses of this letter, as in pretty much all of the letters in the New Testament. But I do want to emphasize that this is not just the introduction to a human letter. This is text inspired by the very Spirit of God and intended for you to hear and receive, not to pass over, but to receive. And one way I know that is when I look at these verses, I'm surprised by how well they prepare us for literally everything we're going to encounter in this book. How does God want you to think? These verses get you ready to know that. They prepare us really, really well. So as we springboard off of these verses and look at Philippians, we're going to be seeing how this wants you to think, how God wants you to think, and especially in two areas, because these are, the best of my knowledge, in studying this book for a while, the two primary themes of the book of Philippians. Number one, how do you think about suffering? Number two, how do you think about unity among Christians? Suffering with joy, unity in Christ. How do you think about those things day by day? That is what God is trying to shape in you and will be doing throughout this book. I don't expect that those things change in us with one sermon. Don't expect they change in 10 sermons, but may God cause them to change in 27 sermons as we work our way through this letter to the Philippians. So let's begin then. How do you think first about suffering? First theme in our book, and if you go back to verse number one in our text, what is just that first word there? It is... Paul. And you know Paul. He was the 13th apostle. He was the one lately born, not one of the original 12 of Jesus, but Jesus appeared to him later. He was in zeal, we'll see, a persecutor of Christians. But at this point, because of God's work in him, he's now persecuted for being a Christian. Things have changed. And what's interesting in this book, as you'll see with me, is that more than most of the books of the New Testament, this letter is shaped around the experiences of this one man. First word in your text, Paul. And when we look at the experiences of Paul, what you will learn very quickly is that Paul suffered. You will make that clear throughout this letter, that he suffers. And the reason that's a benefit to us is because what he does in this letter is he's not just telling you that he suffered greatly in many ways, but he is then communicating to the Philippians and thus to you, as he suffers, this is how he thinks about it. You're going to suffer. You are suffering. You will suffer. How are you going to think about it? Paul will say, think this way. That will be one major theme. We don't have to go far in this book to know that will be a theme here because 
Seven verses, that's it. When you get to verse seven, look. He says to the Philippians, you're all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Don't forget that Paul is writing this letter, as with several others that he wrote, from prison. Since Paul is writing to, we see in verse 1 there, all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, that's his audience, we imagine that they are not surprised he's in prison. Why? Because in Acts chapter 16, when Paul first saw these Philippians, when he planted that church in Philippi, the origin of the Christian community in Philippi, you know what happened to Paul? <laughs> he went to prison. Him and Silas, those two together, they were there preaching the gospel. People were coming to Christ, but one day they cast out a demon in this little slave girl. But the owners of that slave girl were using that demon there to get money by her prophesying and telling people things that she could only know supernaturally. So when Paul cast that demon out, a good deed, there in Philippi, the owners of that slave, it says, they dragged Paul and Silas, dragged them, into the marketplace where everyone is before the rulers, and they slander them there. And then we're told this in Acts 16, here's suffering. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, a very normal place for Paul to be, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. I don't know what your plans are for today. <laughs> Sounds like a fun time. Wouldn't recommend that. Probably not going to be your experience. But as we're reading this letter, you have to know that's the common experience of the man writing this letter. That happened in Philippi when he started the church he's now writing to on his second missionary journey. And now, after his third missionary journey, Paul had gone down to Jerusalem. Pretty similar thing happens. Typical for Paul. They take him away under guard and they send him off to Rome. And now, writing this letter, many years later, he is in prison again, but he's in Rome. Thus, Paul is going to speak of the Philippians at the end of chapter 1, in verse 30, as knowing him to be engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had when he was with them, and now you hear I still have. <laughs> He's always in prison. But imprisonment, as inconvenient and embarrassing, you lose your rights, you don't have freedoms, someone is always with you, you've got chains in that day. But that wasn't even the end of the suffering that Paul was experiencing literally every day of his life. There was more suffering, and you see it in this letter, and it could be summarized as just the enemies that Paul has. If you have enemies, you know that's an unpleasant experience. Now, we expect that Paul would have enemies among unbelievers. There he is in Rome. The Romans are the ones who put him in prison, so obviously those are his enemies, and that is true. Not long after, they will take a sword and sever Paul's head from his body. Romans are his enemies. 
But what Paul is going to emphasize in this letter more than the Romans is other Christians who are his opponents. We'll see at least two sets of Christians by name who are opponents to Paul, possibly three, but at least two. The first set we're going to see is in chapter 1, beginning there in verse 15, where Paul is going to say, shockingly, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. And look, verse 17, the former, those ones, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me, that's hurt me, in my imprisonment. <laughs> Whoa, I don't know how they do that. We'll get to that in the text. But there are literally people, as Paul is in prison in Rome, and he knows that they are out preaching Christ in order to make him feel bad. They don't like him. That's one set of enemies Paul has to think about. Another set of enemies, a far more serious set of enemies, will show up later in chapter 3. He says, verse 2, Philippians, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. As we'll see, these are enemies known as Judaizers. They would be Christian in name. But they followed Paul place to place after he planted churches, and they said, Christ, of course, died on the cross, wonderful, grace, sure, but if you want to be right with God, you can't just believe. You also need to be circumcised and practice the law of Moses in detail, because that's God's law. Those are the Judaizers. They were bringing works into salvation. Therefore, in a book like Galatians, Paul strongly speaks against the Judaizers. It seems like he's dealing with just the same people here in Philippians chapter 3. They are breaking his heart because he loves the Philippians. And here is a threat, a danger, enemies of Paul, the Judaizers. They seem to maybe be the same enemies in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 3. For many, Paul says, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. It means it hurts. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So, is your life hard? Paul's life's hard. He's in prison. No freedoms. He has enemies everywhere of all sorts. Concerns weighing upon him. So he's dealing, I hope you see, with the same thing you're dealing with in your life, hard things that come into your life. Disappointments? He didn't want to be in prison. But now we have to ask the question, and we will throughout this study, how does he think about the suffering in his life? How does he tell you to think? What is thinking this way about your suffering? We can summarize it with a word you know is characteristic of this book, if you've ever studied it. Joy. That is a paradox. That doesn't make sense at first. Yet it's everywhere in Scripture. You know, count it all joy, brothers, when you encounter various trials. Or again, blessed are those who mourn. Well, that doesn't make any sense, does it? 
But this is the Christian way. This is how Christians think. You take a Christian and you take suffering and you put it in and you know what comes out? Joy. That's what happens with Paul. That's the way he thinks about it. Look, he's imprisoned. That's not fun. You ever been to prison? That's not fun. Imagine it for Paul. We're reading this in comfortable seats, and it's air-conditioned in here. These are all nice things, and Paul had none of them. He's physically suffering as a prisoner. There's so much he cannot do. He burns to preach the gospel everywhere. He can't do it. He's in prison. So how does he think about that? Anxiety? Anger? It's not how Christians think. Look. Look here, verses, chapter 1 here, verses 12 on. Here's how he thinks about it. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, what has happened to him? Suffering, pain, prison. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And, bonus, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He's not having a pity party in that prison, I promise you. Look at that. He's recognizing God's hand at work even in his suffering and unpleasant situation. The reality for Paul is there in Rome, he could die, and he knows that. He will die, not this imprisonment, but a later Roman imprisonment. He will die there. They will cut his head off, and he knows that's very possible any day for him. So where's the anger? Where's the anxiety? Where's the fear? It's not there. Look, verses 20 and 21, in light of the possibility of not just imprisonment, but death, he says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, not, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be killed. <laughs> be for you and me. That is not for Paul. It's not the suffering that takes his mind that he focuses upon or how do I get out of here? In fact, he will get out of there and he has a suspicion of that. We'll see. That's not what he's focused on. Paul's thinking is what? How is he thinking about suffering even unto death? If Christ can be honored, well, kill me. In other words, an attitude of joy like the woman of Proverbs 31, smiling at the future, and the future is rarely happy in this life, smiling at the future. That's Paul's attitude because of the way he thinks. And you and I are to think this way. This attitude toward enemies throwing him in prison, trying to spite him, certainly speaking ill of him, the possibility of death, everything going not according to Paul's plans, if you read about these kinds of things in the news, it's just not like this. I promise you it's not like this. That's why you can't think that same way. You're not going to get it in the movies. You're not going to get it in television. You're going to get that here. And if you're a Christian, this is how you think. In suffering, joy. That doesn't make suffering light. Sometimes it's painful. It's deep. 
We can express that. We have the Psalms. But there is joy. How does Paul think beyond the physical suffering of imprisonment and disappointment about these enemies? You've seen he has enemies, all sorts. How does he think about it? How does he want you to think about those who are opposed to you? Well, first, the Romans who threw him in prison. How does he think about them? Well, I can suggest his tenor of thought if you flip to the end of Philippians in chapter 4, verse 22. He says, typical of Paul, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, how did they become Christians? Well, we know probably in chapter 1 when he said, like we read, that his imprisonment for Christ had become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest. Was Paul trying to figure out how to get back at these nasty Romans ruining his life? No, Christians don't kill people. Christians convert people. And that's what Paul had done, certainly through his testimony, his faithfulness, and his joy in a horrid circumstance when they threw him into prison. Yeah, but what about the harder situation, which is not unbelievers who are opposed to you, but believers or those at least Christian in name who are opposed to you? Well, how does Paul think about that? Well, first, those who were preaching Christ from envy and rivalry that we saw, trying to make him afflicted in his imprisonment. Paul says in verse, chapter 1, verse 18, what then, meaning how should we think about that? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that, I rejoice. You cut a Christian, and they bleed joy. True of Paul. Those enemies, then, who are still preaching Christ, he's glad Christ is preached, even if they want to spite him. That other set of enemies, those who are the dogs, the evildoers, the Judaizers, false teachers, his attitude is, of course, different toward them there in chapter 3, but notice his attitude. Chapter 3, verse 18. For many, those are his enemies and enemies of the cross, many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. These are false teachers endangering the souls of those Paul most loves. And Paul says, I tell you, not with mocking, not with belittling, not with sarcasm. I tell you with tears in my eyes. Tears for the false teachers. That's how I take that. Maybe when we get there, I'll take it a different way, but that's how I take that. I tell you with tears, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. When you revile a Christian, a Christian doesn't revile in return, but returns a blessing on the head of the reviler. That's what it is to be a Christian. You know that? That's the way you should think about your enemies. Think this way. And if we were to take this back to the introduction, verses 1 and 2, look, I could understand for us, if there were no Christ, no gospel, and we had only the hope of our lost neighbors to depend upon some maybe 
whimsical notion that maybe there's an afterlife and maybe we'll be okay or maybe there's not and this life's all you have. If that's literally all you had, then if someone reviles you, by all means, revile them back. Why wouldn't you do that? And why would you find joy if all your hopes for this life were dashed and you were thrown in prison? There's no reason for joy. But you see, the reason Paul produces joy in his suffering is because he's thinking differently. How is he thinking? Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lost people don't have this grace, this favor from God, this empowerment, this enablement by God to live a holy life. They don't have that. Free salvation through the death of Christ upon the cross. You're not guilty anymore. They don't have that. You know who has that? You have that if you're in Christ. That's what you think about. And peace, both with God and with others and calm within yourself. The lost world, they don't have a father in heaven to care for them. They don't have a Lord Jesus Christ to follow. You have all that. And if Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, that's in your mind, you're thinking that way, and then suffering slams into your life, which it may this week, then out comes, if you're thinking like that, pain and joy. Because God's going to use that. And God's going to care for you, and God's going to bring you through that. It's a different way of thinking. It produces a different kind of reaction. So suffering producing joy. That's one major theme we will see in Philippians. Summarized in that famous verse you know in chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Did you miss that? Again, I will say, rejoice. How do you think about suffering? 27, 28 weeks from now, may God grant for all of us that we think this way about suffering. So that will be one major theme in this book, suffering with joy. Another one will have to do with our thinking, and it will be our thinking when it comes to Christian unity. That is the second great theme of this book, more than any other in the New Testament that I know of. If you go back to verse 1, you already see this at play in the introduction. We saw Paul, but notice, this is Paul and Timothy. I hope you know that in almost no other of the New Testament books is there an introduction like this. Two of them have Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, but most every book in the New Testament that Paul writes starts with his name, a description of him as an apostle, and then afterward, whatever companion is with him, if there is one, it is really only here and then those two other places that you have Paul at the very beginning saying Paul and before anything else and Timothy. This companion he had picked up in Lister and Derby, a younger man, my middle name, a fearer of God who we'll see later in the book of Philippians was like a son to Paul in the faith. But here in the introduction, what's interesting is Paul wants to place him as early as possible. This letter is not written by Timothy. It's written by Paul, and yet Timothy is with him, and he places them together on, really in this letter, at least this equal footing, because he describes them not as apostles, because Timothy's not an apostle, but as servants of Christ Jesus, side by side, literally side by side in the text, 
And Paul is going to be arguing for us as Christians laboring side by side as believers. Then even if you look at who this is addressed to, you see this idea of unity. It's to a word we will see a lot in this book. All the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And just so you know, it's literally all, all. He adds the leadership with the overseers and deacons. Overseers and deacons, as a side note, are the two offices and the only two offices that Christ has given to his church in terms of leadership. That's why at a church like this, we have those two offices of leadership. The one are the overseers. These are exactly the same group as are called elsewhere elders, pastors. The pastor is not just the paid guy, I promise you. Pastor just means shepherd, and that's used of all the elders. We have four here at Faith Bible Church. Past elders, pastors, shepherds, other traditions say things like bishops. All of these refer literally to the same thing biblically, and it's these, overseers. And they're the ones called to the word of God in prayer to spiritually oversee and lead the flock. The deacons, the only other office given to the church... The deacons are those who come alongside the elders and the body and practically, in a very hands-on way, serve the practical matters of the church in order to bless the body and to free up the elders so that instead of waiting on tables, they can devote themselves to the word of God in prayer, as in Acts chapter 6 with the apostles. So those are the two, and we have those here. We have three deacons. We have four elders, and this is why, if you wonder why we do that, it's the biblical teaching. But even here, just backing up from that, it's all the saints, it's the leadership, it's all the people. Notice the letter's not just addressed to the leadership, by the way, it's addressed to all the saints, including the leadership. It's as if what Paul is doing in this introduction is here he is, reaches over, takes Timothy with him, big embrace, me and Timothy, we're the ones sending this to you, and you all, hey, get together, a group picture here, bring the leadership, literally all the saints come together. So it's a very fitting introduction because unity of believers is going to be the second major theme of this book. And therefore, how does this book want you to think about Christian unity? Well, I can say at least two things in summary of what Paul will say about Christian unity. The first one we're going to see is that Christian unity is not a cheap thing. Maybe you know the term ecumenism or ecumenicalism. Usually that is a term used to say, hey, as Christians, we should sort of extend our reach, and anyone who claims the title of Christian, we can all come together because we're all Christians here. We can have a unity together. No matter what your distinctive beliefs or how you take parts of the Bible or what your theology, as long as you say you're a Christian and you follow Jesus, then we're all on the same team and we're all together. The only problem with that is the book of Philippians. <laughs> it is Paul's attitude. Is that the way that Paul thinks about every person naming the name of Christ. You've already seen that that is not true. Chapter 3, referring to those who would call themselves Christians, Paul says, look out for the dogs. 
And I assure you that was no more flattering a term then than it is now. Look out for the evildoers, for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul can speak of his enemies here with tears, but he speaks of his enemies as opponents, enemies of the cross of Christ. He's not reaching out his broad arms and bringing in the Judaizers and saying kumbaya around the campfire. We're all in this together. He's saying there is a line of separation, and that is false teaching that compromises the gospel. A cheap unity would just say, ah, you're Christian, we all come together. You're Mormon, you're Jehovah's Witness, whatever your views are, you know about Jesus, we're all together. And that, in some ways, feels nice. However, it's just not the way this tells you to think. There are real spiritual dangers among those who call themselves Christian, and we have to be very careful who we say are false teachers. We need to make sure they're false teachers or false beliefs, and yet Paul has a category for that. So Christian unity is not cheap in that way. Christian unity is also not cheap in the sense of a Pollyanna easiness about it. Look, Paul was not just a mere idealist who thought, wow, wouldn't it be awesome if we all just got together and we all got along? Paul was planting churches. You ever read, read his letters to the Corinthians? Paul knew we don't all just get along. It's not how we do, even after you're in Christ. Listen, I know I annoy you. I know I've done it, and you've done it to everyone else. We are people here. We are being remade by Christ, but we are people in a fallen state, and we will continue to rub each other the wrong way. Paul is not denying that. In fact, you have chapter 4 beginning with a conflict in the church at Philippi. Paul knows, and he says, I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Paul knows there will be, will be, conflict in every local church. In this case, it's these two women he names, Euodia and Syntyche. We may imagine from his naming them that they may be prominent in the local church. And they are not agreeing in the Lord. What is Paul's way of thinking about that? It's not to ignore it. <laughs> he literally names it in a letter, more than I would do from up here. But he names the women, says we have to address this, and Paul is not Pollyanna about it, like it will just go away if you ignore it. Not in this case. He says, in fact, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. He knows that unity is not cheap. Unity takes work. Unity takes intentionality in the church. Lastly, we may say unity is not cheap in the sense that unity is not just something you buy. It's not just something you do something nice for someone and you got unity. They scratch your back, you scratch their back. That's not the way it works. In fact, we will see throughout this book that Paul was writing this letter in part because the Philippians had sent him a financial gift while he was in prison. And we'll see in his attitude, thank you, I didn't need it, but thank you. Paul doesn't feel united with the Philippians just because they're paying him money. That's a cheap kind of unity. That's a worldly kind of unity. His goes far beyond that. So, the first thing we'll learn about Christian unity, it's not a cheap thing. Secondly and lastly, what we will learn about Christian unity in this book is that Although it's difficult, 
it's entirely possible if you're humble. You've seen humility really already in our text. Verse 1, Paul, unlike his other letters, does not describe himself as an apostle, great title, but as a servant, really just one of the servants of Christ Jesus. I've not mentioned any passage yet from perhaps the greatest chapter of the entire book of Philippians, and that is chapter 2. But that is because chapter 2 is devoted entirely to this very thing, that you can have unity in the church if you are humble. The only kind of unity among Christians is a humble unity. There's no such thing as a proud unity. It snaps unity every time. What happens in chapter 2 is Paul begging the Philippians, be of the same mind. That is, have unity. And we ask, how? We don't automatically have unity. We witness that in our church. So how do you do that, Paul? And he will answer with the entire second chapter of that book. In fact, immediately after urging them to unity, he says, here's how. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. If we do that, we will have an unbreakable unity. The rest of Philippians is three examples of people who did that. The greatest is Christ, who emptied himself to be a man, humbled himself to save us, dying on a cross. The other two examples are Timothy, a humble faithful servant, and Epaphroditus will see him as well. If you, in your mind, think humbly, you will have no problem having unity in this church, in any church. People will still offend you. People will still disappoint you, leadership down, everyone. If you think humbly, you will have Unity. That's Paul's conviction, and he'll press it upon us in an entire chapter. We'll see chapter 2. We can have unity, and this is how. Look, there really are, as we've said, false teachers, and we can't have unity with them. Paul calls them the dogs. You can't have unity with them. But most of the conflict that you experience is not going to be with bona fide false teachers. Most of your conflict is going to be with the people who are sitting around you right now who are genuine believers and who just bother you. Yodia and Syntyche was the same way. You will have conflict. Some of you, I'm sure, are having conflict right now. It's just how it goes. And that's okay. You can still have unity, Philippians says, if you have humility. If that's the way you think, you will be united with other believers more wonderfully than you probably think possible right now. I hope you can see then, brothers and sisters, think this way. I hope you can see the providence of God in our own body of telling us in these great areas, how do you think about suffering and unity, to think this way. You're not going to find this anywhere else. You're going to find this right here and appeal to you for the next 27, 28 weeks, including Christmas message, I guess. For the next 28 weeks, Paul is going to be telling you, oh, hey, you're thinking that way. Stop thinking that way. You're getting anxious. You're getting anxious. Stop. 
Stop. I don't care what the article said. Stop. Think this way instead. This is the way Christians think. This is the way Christ thinks. And so in the words of chapter 2, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or in other words, think this way. Let's pray. Lord, when we call you our Lord, that's not, that's not trivial. We mean this, our Lord Jesus Christ. And as our Lord, you've given us this word. It is not a light thing. It is our very life. It is not a trifle. It is more important than any other word that we've heard all week or that we've spoken or will speak. This is the word by which we live. And we are blessed if we meditate day and night upon this word believing all of its promises, the hope of forgiveness and eternal life in Christ, not swerving to the right or to the left, and taking to heart its commandments that we, like the saints of old, might do as they did, just as the Lord commanded them. Please help us in the instances of how we think about suffering, for we will think about it one way or another, and how we think about unity in the body. Help us not to think that way or that way. Help us to think this way so that in all things you might be honored through the church forever and ever. 